everyone. I'm Rob Wolf, and welcome to episode number 29 of Unformidable, where we take a look at some of the less heralded Mets in our beloved franchise's quirky history, as every player who dons the orange and blue is, in their own way, Unformidable. So, baseball fans, the League Championship Series are in the book, and depending upon how deeply you dislike the division rival Nationals versus the older fans among us who may dislike the older division rival St. Louis Cardinals and their oft National League supremacy more. It went at least halfway according to plan, at least for Mets fans. I was rooting for the Cardinals, I'll admit, but, you know, whatever. I mean, at least it wasn't the Braves is you know, kind of my feeling as far as the National League goes, and certainly uh, the American League was a relief, and now I, we can go on and watch just a normal World Series. And, uh, you know, while the Yankees-Astros series was quite good, it was not quite the classic one would hope from two such incredibly talented teams with over 100 wins each. I mean, if you're going to have a memorable six-game league championship series, you almost have to include the Mets, don't you? Because, I mean, if you do, you'll either get a Grand Slam single and an, and a near comeback from a 3-0 deficit, or you'll get a game that, for completely reasonable, non-hyperbolic reasons, inspired a book still on my bookshelf called The Greatest Game Ever Played. And we're going to talk about that game a little bit today. This is like a sacred text to me. I, I, I may not talk about the game. It, it's like probably how people feel who are religious talking about religious matters. I, I don't feel worthy to narrate this game. I've read so many books and accounts and watched so many videos of this game that I watched at 11 years old when I don't think I left my couch for a single second of the 4 minute and 42 second game time. But talk about it we will, because as a segue, uh, as your friend and humble narrator for these journeys into the Mets past, I consider myself relatively well steeped in Mets history. Uh, I remember there was that random game show where para Mets fans could go up against Howie and Gare on Mets trivia, and I always fancied uh, my friend Rob Ward and I could obviously go down, but, you know, go down with some shred of dignity, or, you know, maybe maybe make one of them raise an eyebrow and be like, hmm, you guys kind of know your stuff. But uh, this put a dent in my met-knowledge confidence, uh, as a friend of mine said to me, you should do a show about Kevin Bass for the LCS. And I was like, no, 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 this show is about former Mets, not just players in Mets history. Because, ladies and gentlemen, I do not remember Kevin Bass putting on a Mets uniform. But that he did in 1992, six years after he was etched in my consciousness as the dangerous Kevin Bass, per voiceover to the 1986 Mets A Year to Remember VHS tape that I watched over and over and over and over again after I received it on Christmas of that year. Uh, but bef because before he was a Met, Kevin Bass, of course, struck out in the bottom of the 16th inning to end that possible greatest game ever played, that contender for that title. So we will reminisce briefly about Kevin Bass's tenure with the Mets in 1992, and perhaps a bit more so 
in his appearing against the Mets in the 1986 National League Championship Series. But without further ado, let's take a look at Kevin Bass's journey to the major leagues. Before he was involved in major league playoff games, Kevin Bass was born in Redwood City, California, May 12, 1959. He was drafted by the Milwaukee Brewers out of high school in the second round of the 1977 MLB June draft. And at age 22, Kevin Bass made the opening day roster for the then American League Milwaukee Brewers. He was on the roster pretty continuously into mid-May, presumably about the last piece on the roster. He appeared in only 18 games in April and May and garnered only nine at-bats going 0 for 9 with a walk, although he did appear, obviously, in nine other games as a defensive replacement. Got only one start in that period, and that start was in the second game of a doubleheader. And even in an era where perhaps bench players got less usage than they did now, and bullpens got less usage, obviously nine at-bats through a month and a half of the season, not a useful, efficient use of the roster. So Kevin, the young player, went back down to the minor leagues. And, of course, that 82 Brewers team was a a very good one that went on to the World Series. Uh, Harvey's Wallbangers, as they were dubbed, were were locked in an intense battle with the Baltimore Orioles and Boston Red Sox for the American League East title. So they did what contenders do late in the season and made a trade. Uh, sending three players to the Houston Astros for veteran pitcher Don Sutton. And one of those young players, as you might guess, was Kevin Bass. Sutton would do his part for the Brewers going 5-1 and one down the stretch as they won the division by a scant one game, winning a game in the LCS against the Angels, although going 0-1 in a World Series that the Brewers would lose in seven to the St. Louis Cardinals. Meanwhile, Bass would prove to still be a bit young for the major leagues when he arrived in Houston, but would eventually be the key piece, the the best part of that trade from the Astros' perspective. He got his first hit and RBI on September 8th, 1982, just a few days after the trade. The trade was made before... September 1st, although there was for three players to be named later, and they weren't actually named until about September 3rd. So Bass came right up to the majors and played a bit more for the Astros, got 24 at-bats for the team, and got his first hit in RBI on September 8th against Atlee Hamaker. That was his only hit of the year, so he did finish the 1982 season between the Brewers and the Astros, one for 33. But he was obviously a young, promising player who was a part-time player in 1983 and 1984 for the Astros before becoming their regular right fielder at the age of 26 in 1985, hitting 269 with 16 home runs and 19 stolen bases. So their best was an up-and-coming player looking to peak for an up-and-coming team that was a few games over... 500 at the end of the 1985 season at 83 and 79 as the Astros entered the 1986 season. And Bass would indeed have his best se- the best season of his career in 1986 for a franchise that had one of, if not its best seasons to date. Obviously, they have far exceeded 
1986 teams over that their 1986 franchise team over the last few seasons, the Astros. But Bess uh, was by war, by B-war. He had a 5.3 war in 1986, uh, the, the best for any position player on the Astros, behind only, of course, the very dangerous Mike Scott, whose shadow loomed over, whose cheating shadow loomed over that series for the New York Mets. But Bass was a, obviously a huge part of the Astros getting to that uh, series. At the age of 27, he had a 2020 season, 20 homers, 22 stolen bases. He had his first and actually only all-star appearance and actually was seventh in the MVP voting in the 1986 offseason. So while uh, Glenn Davis was the quintessential power hitter in the middle of the order, it uh, really felt like Bass and uh, also I remember Jose Cruz was on that team, always the dangerous professional 300 hitter. Uh, they they and not that Davis didn't scare me, but Bass and Cruz seemed to loom as just very dangerous hitters in that lineup during that series to me. And Bass did hit 292 in the 1986 NLCS, which was the only postseason appearance of his career, unfortunately for him. Uh, fortunately for us, I guess, though, that he only was in the LCS that year. So yeah, 7 for 24, 292 average. He did draw four walks, stole two bases, but was caught stealing three times, including twice in that game six, as we'll uh, recount a bit. So again, I just don't really feel worthy of doing a blow-by-blow account of this game. I'll just share my own personal memories, which is that, you know, the game started at like three or four o'clock. I just remember getting out of grammar school and running home and running to the TV and putting it on and like sitting on the couch with my decrepit stuffed Mr. Met doll, which I still have and is even more decrepit now, and probably like not moving if the Mets were doing good, because I was, or well, they weren't doing good for pretty much the whole game, but I was that kind of crazed, superstitious 11-year-old. And God, I just know the whole city was just wrapped up in the Mets at that time. I know my father told me, and he was not a baseball fan by any stretch of the imagination, but he was working in the city at that point in time, and he told me he you know, when he came in, I told him, that's tied 3-3, and he was like, yeah, yeah, I know, all I heard through Grand Central, everyone was, you know, obviously pre any kind of smartphone or smart anything, just people standing on corners, watching the game, passing on the score, Uh, and my friend Rob Ward told me that, you know, he he had a house on a street that, you know, where people would walk up home from the subway or the Metro North, then he said people would just, like, call into his house, what's the score, while, while the game was going on, and, you know, I know I'm romanticizing the shit out of this, but it, yeah, that's what I do, I mean, it's one of my fondest sports memories ever, but as you probably know, the Mets, uh, took the, the Mets were down 3 nothing going into the ninth inning, and managed to scrape out three runs off the previously dominant Bob Nepper to tie the game in the top of the ninth and just turn it into the most white-knuckle game ever, and as has been beaten to death, but was incredibly true, even though it was a game six, it really felt like a desperate elimination game for both teams, because the thought of facing Mike Scott again in game seven was incredibly daunting, 
and you know just did not seem like something that that 108 win team would overcome the Mets get a run in the 14th inning and then Billy Hatcher hits that memorable home run uh, off the foul pole to tie the game again at four and just send me back into terror at every Houston Astro batter knowing that every batter even though that was not quite the era of home runs that uh, that we're in now, every batter could end the game and send the Mets to defeat until we took the lead again. And not only did the Mets take the lead, but they actually scored three runs in the top of the 16th. And, you know, I was probably getting ready to shake up some Coca-Cola and spray it around the apartment and piss the hell off out of my mom, but the Astros wouldn't die. And... And after uh, Roger McDowell gave the Mets a ridiculous five innings in relief, uh, Jesse Orozco was on his entering his third inning of relief, and there was no chance uh, that Davey was trusting anyone else. I wonder if, you know, in, in today's day and age, if we would have seen, like, uh, a Doc or Darling close that game out. But anyway, who cares? It ended happy, and... I won't worry about it, but after striking out the leadoff hitter in the bottom of the 16th, Jesse Orozco walked Davey Lopes, allowed, a sing- allowed singles to Bill Doran and goddamn Billy Hatcher again. Uh, I guess he came up as a tying run. I can't imagine how nervous I was then. Induced a ground out to Denny Walling, so the Mets were one out away when the score was 7-5, to five. but then Glenn Davis singled. Make it, cutting it to 7-6, putting runners on first and second, and bringing up, as we already said, the dangerous Kevin Bass. Keith Hernandez famously went to the mound, and if I understand the anecdotes correctly, very profanely told Jesse Orozco not to throw another fucking fastball. And apparently Keith Hernandez was correct in that suggestion. Um, I was doing some research for the pod, and in 2010, Kevin Bass spoke at a Sabre conference about the at-bat and credited the crafty Jesse Orozco, or I guess by proxy then Keith Hernandez, saying, he killed me with slow outside curves that would have put me on first with a walk had I not been so dedicated to swinging at whatever came up there. The tying run was on second base, but I couldn't think out anything. It was the stupidest at-bat of my career, but it taught me that a batter has to stay grounded in the moment and not get ahead of everything with his own dream about what he alone was going to do. I thought that was a nicely, lovely, introspective take on what must be a painful baseball memory for Kevin Bass, but uh, all of of that is to say that Jesse Orozco stayed with the soft stuff and induced the gleeful, glorious Bob Murphy call that he had struck out Kevin that, that with a swing and a miss. Kevin Bass went down, and the Mets were the champions of the National League in 1986. As noted, 86 was the not just the best year of our baseball lives, it was definitely the best, despite that unhappy ending, it was the best season of Kevin Bass's career, although he was, again, a very good player, not quite an all-star, but a very good player for the Astros in 87 and 88 before injuries really cut into his 1989 season and his numbers plummeted quite a bit. So at the age of 30, going to be 31 the following season, 
Beth was a free agent. The Astros chose not to re-sign him, and he signed with the San Francisco Giants, where he spent 90-91 and the first half of the 1992 season before the trade that made him eligible for this podcast to the New York Mets. So that 1992 Met team was struggling to cling on to the golden days of a dynasty that was that never was and any hope of was pretty much now clearly gone but as of July 31st of that season in 1992 the Mets were 49 and 52 they were in fourth place but only five games out in what was a clusterfuck of an NL East with the defending champion Pirates uh, struggling although still in first place by two over the Expos and three and a half over the Cubs, I believe. And the Mets starting outfield that year was um, Vince Coleman, Howard Johnson, and Bobby Bonilla. And in the span of days around then, both Bonilla with a fractured right rib and Howard Johnson with a fractured wrist landed on the disabled list. So in early August, uh, the Mets were in the middle of an eight-game losing streak that would completely extinguish any faint hope that that the team that the fumes of that championship team could get back into contention but the Mets weren't ready to give up and and traded away uh made a quick trade to acquire Kevin Bass to plug that those holes in the outfield uh caused by these injuries so on August 8th of 92 the Mets were in the middle of an eight game losing streak but they sent minor leaguer Rob Katsaroff to the San Francisco Giants to bring in Kevin Bass, who actually didn't play badly as a Met. He appeared in 46 games, nine doubles, two triples, two homers, nine RBIs, seven for nine on stolen bases. But, you know, as I said at the top, I don't remember him on the Mets at all. I'm embarrassed to say I I tried and I couldn't find an indelible Bass-Mets moment uh, one of those two Mets home runs was off of John Smoltz, uh, kicked off a four-run rally to defeat Smoltz and the Braves 6-5, a game in which the tying run would be driven in by Mackie Sasser of not being able to throw the ball back to the pitcher fame, and the winning run would be driven in on a bases-loaded walk to Bill Pakoda of having analytic systems named after him fame, and the save would be nailed down by the famous-slash-infamous Anthony Young. But that was in mid-September. The Mets were 61 and 70 and completely out of it. And apparently 17-year-old Rob Wolf had better things to do than watch the 92 Mets play out the string. Uh, Although I can't imagine what that would be, honestly, because I did not have a wealth of social opportunities that I can remember at age 17. So uh, I am sorry to say I do not remember Kevin Pass, and I don't feel I have a legitimate excuse. But so it goes sometimes, I guess. That 92 team would really collapse down the stretch. So from 49 and 52, they finished 72 and 90 in what would be a dim precursor of the infamous worst team money could buy the following season. And as for Bass, he did not come back to the Mets in 93. He went home to Houston. Uh, He played there in 93 and 94. And then he spent his last year in Major League Baseball in 1995 in Baltimore a part-time player each season, getting between 200, 300 at-bats each season, and actually played pretty well in 93 and 94, and 95 seemed to really fall off the cliff and retired after that season. The 
you know, quick recap. He was a primarily a corner outfielder, uh, primarily a right fielder, I think, with Houston. Played some left as well in his career. A bit of a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Uh, at the height of his career in the mid-'80s with the Astros, he had double-digit homers for four straight seasons, a uh, high of 20, as noted in 1986, double-digit steals for five straight seasons with a high of 31. He didn't walk a ton. Uh, perhaps he didn't quite learn the lesson he thought he did from Jesse Roscoe, uh, nor did he strike out a ton, uh, but he memorably and blissfully did once. Sorry, Kevin Bass. He was a very good defensive outfielder as well. The most recent info I could find about his personal life that he lives in the Houston area and works in real estate. Two of his sons were drafted in Major League Baseball. His son Garrett was selected by the Nationals in the 42nd round in 2007. And his son Justin was taken by the Los Angeles Angels in the 21st round in the 2011 season, though neither made it past A ball. For his Major League career, Kevin Bess hit 118 home runs. Had 611 RBIs, 151 stolen bases, good for a 14.8 war, according to baseball reference. Slash line for his career was 270, 323, 411 for 735 OPS and an above average 105 OPS plus. As mentioned earlier, 1986 was his best season by far, all-star, 7th in the league MVP voting. He hit 311, which was 4th in the National League that year. Had, uh, went along with the career-high 20 homers. He had 33 doubles, 184 hits, 79 RBIs that season. So you can see why the voiceover gods of the video called him the dangerous Kevin Bass. And he really hit to his career numbers with his third of a season with the Mets. In those 40-plus games, he hit 270 with a 303 on base percentage, 431 slugging, and he was good enough for a 0.1 B war. And just to put his career in a slight bit of perspective and throw out some more modern names we might know, and very currently World Series-wise, his second most similar career uh, similarity score is Gerardo Parra. Um, Other names on the list include Jeff Leonard, uh, Jason Hayward, which kind of surprised me a little, but in retrospect, maybe not, and... Operation Shutdown himself, Derek Bell. So those are some players that had similar careers to Kevin Bass, but, well, uh, I guess Derek Bell made a mark, but none of the rest of them were as unformidable as Mr. Bass. A very impressive, very positive, very productive Major League career with one unfortunate for him, but fortunate for us, side note. Thank you for listening to Unformidable. Please go to AmazonAvenue.com for more Mets-related content. Follow Amazon Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find this and all of our Amazon pods wherever you get your podcasts. Original music by Bunga. I'm on Twitter at WolfRR, W-O-L-F-F-R-R, and the show is at Unpermetable. Thank you, and let's go. Amazon.